Hi, Father. Um, you mentioned several times in your talk um, praying a binding prayer. Yeah. And from what I understand, there are certain binding prayers that can only be said by priests or exorcists. Is that true, or is there a specific binding prayer, or are there variations? Um, actually, there are variations, but the real issue in the relationship to the binding prayer is whether you have the authority to say the binding prayer over the particular individual. So if you're going to do what they call an imprecatory prayer, which is basically to command the demons to leave, they have to be someone you have authority over, like your children or something like that. And priests can do it over anybody because they have the, their authority in relationship to the lay faithful is general. So they can actually do that. Um, and so the, otherwise, if you can't do the imprecatory where you're actually commanding the demons to leave, you can ask Christ or just say, you know, Gee, um, our Lord and our Lady, um, I ask you to bind this demon. You just ask them and then they can do that. Um, for you if you don't have uh, authority over the person. Father, I'm a second grade teacher, so any advice on how I can pray or help my students as they prepare for the sacraments of reconciliation and receiving the Eucharist? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One is um, pray to their guardian angels. You know, ask all the guardian angels there just to ask them to, to help the children to, uh, to prepare for it. Here, I'm presuming that your question is a spiritual one and not, you know, what catechism do I use? You know? um, <clears throat> I think the other thing is, too, is, is doing those imprecatory prayers, or sorry, deprecatory prayers, as I mentioned, asking our Lord and Our Lady to keep the demons from afflicting the children or blocking them or keeping them from learning or even approaching the sacraments. The other thing that we're starting to find more and more is... Um, you might have heard me talk about this on one of my conferences online, but what we found out is that, as uh, this one demon said, he said, if you consecrate your exterior goods to Our Lady or consecrate something to Our Lady, once she accepts them, we are not permitted to touch them. So the... Point being in that is, is I would I would literally consecrate their education, their formation to Our Lady, and do it daily. I think that'd be the most one of the most effective ways to do it. Thank you, um, Father. Thank you, and first of all, thank you for for coming to Grand Rapids. Thank you very much. Uh, the question that we have here is, you had just mentioned that someone was able to be possessed and then go and, and essentially go to heaven. The question that I had, and we were thinking, is how can someone become possessed being in the state of grace? Uh, we thought that you had to essentially invite the demon in. So. Okay, yeah, that's a very good point. Okay, so there's actually your question is twofold. The first is. Can you become possessed uh, and not have committed a mortal sin? The answer is yes. There's actually three ways in which people become possessed. The first is you commit some mortal sin, which is an open door. The second one is that, you, that some grave evil is committed against you, like you're cursed. Um, one woman that I knew became possessed because her sister ran her over with a car. Um, there, so it, it, grave things. We see a lot of women... Um, become possessed who have been raped or molested or physically or psychologically abused. So some grave disorder occurs. And the reason being, as I mentioned in the conference, the demons work off the objective. So if, if you're using a thing, and human beings in this sense would be a thing, you're using it in a disordered fashion, you're subjugating that person or thing to the domain of Satan, and that's how that actually works on a, 
uh, on an authoritative level. And then the last one is just purely the will of God. So there was, uh, um, I'll use this by way of example because this is the one that most people are familiar with, but most people aren't that familiar with actually the progress of what happened. Uh, how many here have heard of uh, um, the exorcism of Emily Rose? Who Emily Rose is? Okay. Um, her actual real name is Annalise Michelle, or that's how we pronounce it in English. But her name is Annalise Michelle. And she was actually became possessed in 1967 because she was cursed by one of the women in, the, um, in her town. She was actually liberated about two years later. And the, um, which most uh, historical accounts don't recount. Then three months later, which is, it's, it's in the movie, but it's, it's not well done. But three months later, Our Lady appeared to her and said, would you be willing to allow this to happen the possession happened again so that many would come to knowledge of these things. And she said, yes. If you go online and can get the, the image, if you just type in the grave of Annalise Michelle, it's a shrine. She was an extraordinarily holy woman. She would spend her periods of lucidity where she was not, um, uh, when the demons weren't attacking her, in front of the Blessed Sacrament, begging and interceding for the priest, because this is in Germany in the early 70s, and the priests were just going off the rails. And she also offered up her second possession for the priests in Germany. And so the lay people, knowing how holy she was, um, actually wanted, um, want her to be canonized. There's a reason the bishops will not allow it. There's two. During the second possession, the demons start talking about certain things that become a little uncomfortable. They start talking about which priests and bishops are evil and into bad things. And so if they open up the canonization process, that's all going to become public. The second part of it is it's during the time in which the liturgical changes are being introduced. So you literally, this demon's like, oh yeah, we're glad you got rid of the asparagus because that used to drive the demons out of the people. And we're glad you got rid of incense because that used to drive them out of the church. And we're glad you got rid of the belt. And they were literally just going down all the liturgical chains and how happy they were with them. Well, obviously, the German bishops aren't going to sign off on that. So that, that's, the point being is, is that she was very holy. So you can, since possession is in the body, the state of grace is in the soul. So there are two different locations. So it's actually very par uh, possible for somebody actually to be in the state of grace and still be possessed. And they don't have to commit an evil in order to become possessed. In fact, the girl that I, or the woman that I'm working with now became possessed because she was molested in the back seat of her car when she, of her parents' car when she was six with her parents sitting in the front seat. We later kind of figured out, we're not certain about it, but we think it's because her father was trying to work his way up in Freemasonry and that was one of the ways in which they do it. If you, one of the, one of the, dirty little secrets out there is that um, if you, when people that come to us that are possessed as a result of pedophilia activity, half of them, Freemasoners, Freemasons were involved. It's one of those dirty little stories that no one's talking about. So, you know, they all, they all look like these great little guys driving around on golf, on little, uh, you know, go-karts. It's a It is an absolutely Luciferian institution from the top to the bottom. Okay. So anyway, so that's, that's why that they can actually, you can be possessed. The, the woman I'm working with right now, she's going through a little bit of struggles, but that's just because of the level of the warfare. She's almost about to be liberated. It's really intense. 
But I actually saw her go six months without committing venial sin, being possessed by the top demon. So the graces these people receive are extraordinary. You can see it in their lives. Um, Father, um, online you said perhaps that uh, communism was very similar to the way demons act. Yeah. And I also noticed that um, abused people often act in that way too. That's like right. And dysfunctional families act often like liberal communist type things. That's right. And you gave a few examples of how you would speak to um, people who are acting in this manner. Could you give a few more just to get me used to talking oh. to my family? Oh, I, I thought you were going to say <laughs> what I would say to a communist. The issue really isn't uh, so much what I would say to them, it's what I would suggest for you to do. One time, this case of possession I had, this demon was, uh, this, this woman was, I mean, she was a strong woman, and she, she was fighting and fighting and fighting, and at a certain point, the demon started barraging her 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and did not let up at all. And I started to become concerned for her psychological well-being. And so I was just looking at it, and you know, I haven't written three books in psychology, now a fourth, but I'm looking at this, and I'm just like, this is domestic abuse. This is just classic abusive behavior on the side of the demon. And there's two facets to abusive behavior. The first is they tell you things to try and tear you down and abuse you. So it's you're fat, you're ugly, you're not taking care of the kids, the house isn't clean, la -da -da, even if none of that's true, right? They're saying that, and the reason they're, they're, they're trying to barrage you, and there's two things they're trying to accomplish. The first is to get you to actually believe maybe it's true, because as soon as they do that, internally you're hurt, you're wounded, and as a result, you're weak. And then, so now you're fighting the battle on two fronts. They're constantly barraging with their stuff and this stuff internally. And this is the, the whole thing with communism. This is the whole thing right now with the, we have to just stop, stop talking about critical race theory. Stop talking about transgenders. Stop talking about all this nonsense. Just stop talking about it. And there's a reason for that. The reason is, is that if, if someone's abusing you and you say, no, I'm not fat, you just legitimized the topic of discussion. Whereas if you say, wait a minute, if you have a problem with my weight, that's your problem, not mine. And that's what we have to do. We have to stop talking about the topics of their narrative. Because as soon as we do that, they're in control of the narrative. If you just stop it, what we need to do is just start saying, okay, look at so when people, I did this with Father Heilman, they, they, you know, I was mentioning this, you know, if something comes up and it says, oh, you're a racist, he just turns and says, have you always had a problem with accusing people of things they're not guilty of? I mean, have you always had that problem? Have you always had a problem of lying like that? Cheating, committing fraud in elections? Oh, sorry. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, have you, always, have you always had that problem? Because the real issue isn't racism. The real issue isn't the fact that, you know, guys are becoming girls and girls are becoming guys because ultimately they're not. They're just becoming mutilated. That's not the issue. The issue is their malice in trying to force a narrative on it to tear us down. That's the problem, and that's what needs to be addressed. 
And so it's the same thing within the context of the family. If they're doing that kind of thing, you just have to say, look, at, I'm, you know, if you have a problem with this, I'm just not going to, uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to, uh, that's your problem. I'm just not going to address it. And so that's one of the principal things. That, so especially if they're attacking about the Catholic faith, look, if you have a problem with the Catholic faith, that's, and that's actually true. That's actually their problem. It's not your problem. It's their, their, they've got a problem with the way what God has determined. But I think it's even true in, in our culture. <clears throat> we have to stop letting them abuse us because we're all, we're, I mean, we're all just being abused. And it's constant haranguing from the news media. I just find it absolutely flabbergasting that you watch the news media and the systemic lying, systemic. They know this stuff isn't true and they do it over and over and over and they just don't stop. It's literally like listening to Goebbels who said, if you lie enough, eventually people believe you, right? In fact, what we are going through in this country was absolutely, if you look at it, it's absolutely the exact same thing that Hitler and his henchmen put the Germans through before, in Nazi Germany. It's the exact same structure of social engineering. It's the exact same. And so and you're just like, man, they don't even have anything new, do they? I mean, they're still they're, they're doing this. Um, but the other thing is, too, is, and I've mentioned this before, but I, I always find it so interesting. They lie to you. You know they're lying to you. They know you know they're lying to you. But they do it anyway. Right? And you're just like, really? I mean, that, that's a sign of malice. It's not a sign of differences of ideas. These people are malicious. So, okay. Hi, Father. I have a daughter who likes to play Dungeons and Dragons, and mm. she, uh, when she was younger, I don't know if she necessarily played Pokemon, but I know we have a stack of Pokemon cards. I've seen it in the back of your Deliverance Prayers book. Mm. That's one of the things. I want to know that if it is evil, why it is, because her argument is they are playing not in a dark way, Mm -hmm. And she doesn't see the difference between that and something like Lord of the Rings, oh, yeah. where they're doing, you know, magic and things. Right. So that's my question. Um, that's actually quite a few questions in one question. <laughs> um, I actually kept them. I, people would give me Pokemon cards. I would just keep them and I would sort through them. And I actually got the ones that actually have occult material in them. I kept them for that reason because sometimes even when you're training priests, well, I don't know about this. Well, here you go. You know, here's the occult symbol right here. It's in the thing. So Pokemon actually does involve the occult. So I just tell people, no, get rid of it. Get it out of the house. Burn it if you can. When it comes to Dungeons and Dragons, there's a twofold problem is even if they are playing it in a rightly ordered, or in a way that doesn't involve, say, the occult, because a lot of it has become occult, especially in Dungeons and Dragons, and then that's what we actually see. The real problem has to do with role-playing games. So in psychology, we know that if people get too immersed in RPGs, role-playing games, what happens is it causes psychological disassociation. And that disassociation can be mild enough to where the, it's, it's not that perceptible, but it starts, anytime you have disassociation, there's a breakdown of uh, emotional control. So people start having a lot of emotional problems. And so purely on a psychological level, that disassociation can also be, because it's disordered, can be a gateway to diabolic influence. So I tell people, Dungeons and Dragons, no, don't do it. And um, I have not personally seen someone become possessed through doing it, but I do know an exorcist that had to exorcise a boy who was playing Dungeons and Dragons, and that's how he became it. 
uh, became possessed. So I tell people don't do it. The difference between that and Tolkien is, is that if you actually look at Tolkien, Tolkien is not, he's not actually, first of all, he's not using real spells and all that stuff. But the other thing, it's a mechanism to point to the supernatural. So it's a little, it's, a, it's quite a bit of a different thing in him. So, yes. Oh, actually, we got... Yep, the, Father, yeah, I'm, I'm back here. Yep. Thank you for being here, Father Ripperger. I have a question. What, if anything, should be done if the Blessed Sacrament is stolen from an adoration chapel? Oh, I mean, well, the common thing is to do is, is that it should be reported to the authorities and actually an investigation needs to be done and, um, you know, to try and locate it and try and get it back. Obviously, I mean that's part of it. The, the real issue is preventative. You, there should you, you this this you should never have adoration without having two people there at all times. Because if one of them's got to go to the bathroom, then you're going to leave the blessed sacrament unattended, and that's why it's you have to do that. But also, it keeps the theft from actually occurring. Um, the other thing, though, too, is is that Satanists are not stupid. I don't know how many of you have watched that video. It was actually done by the exorcist that trained me. He talked about the five ways that Satanists are stealing hosts. Okay, I won't go into all of them, but one of them is they go to Mass and they watch where the priest leaves the tabernacle king. And then after everyone's gone, they just go help themselves. And this is one of the things that's actually happening. Um, the, the point being is, is that um, it's really about preventativeness, so you just want to make sure that so that it doesn't happen, that, that's, that you, you know, put things in place so that that doesn't become a problem and then, then it's actually a non-issue. Otherwise, um, you know, usually most bishops that I've seen are where that's happened. They call the civil authorities and then they start trying to do an investigation and figuring out. Sometimes you can, if there's footage, you know, that they, uh, um, video footage, they can figure out who did it. Father, I have a question regarding the changes that have happened in the last 50, 60 years. For example, this, the long St. Michael prayer that there was a time when everybody was saying that prayer right now, I think it's restricted. Yeah. We as the laity, what can we say? What can we not say? Can we just pray the lonesome? It's a beautiful prayer. I have read it. I never prayed. Mm -hmm. like, and I, it's so beautiful. You just wonder, can we just pray just for a personal prayer life? Or we're just not supposed to pray? Or? In 1985, the um, Congregation of uh, the Doctrine of the Faith stated that, um, well, first, let's just back up and get a little bit of history. <clears throat> When, the, when that prayer was originally written by Leo XIII, it actually included things that you don't see in it, even in those com the ones today. Once in a while you can find them on the internet, but it actually refers to um, how Leo XIII had actually, in his vision, part of his vision was that he had seen, that he said, um, these evil people will lay their hands on the most sacred things of the church, and, and etc. And we've seen that, right? So he, he was seeing what we're going through now. And so, but uh, when that was first put out, in 1921, I believe it was, they actually put out a different version, which removed the parts that they were worried about scandalizing people. So they removed those, those parts. At that time, they put a rubric in the front of the St. Michael prayer, which is the, um, the prayer against apostate angels of, of Leo XIII. They put a rubric in there that it was restricted to the priest with the permission of his local ordinary. In 1985, the question was asked, can the lay people say this? And they said, no, the lay people are forbidden its use entirely because of the fact that it's restricted to priests with the permission of the bishop. 
Then the priestly fraternity of St. Peter sent a petition and said, because a lot of priests, at the, by this time, by the mid-90s, and by the time I was an exorcist, we were told that anybody can say, any priest can say this prayer. Well, they, 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 they're like, well, where's, where's the change in the rubric? So they actually sent a petitio to the Congregation for the uh, Divine or Doctrine of the Faith and asked them, can any priest pray this? And they said, no, the rubric was never changed, so you still have to have permission of your local bishop to do this. The point being is, is that only certain priests can actually say it, and that being said, um, the lay people are forbidden its use entirely. Sometimes when I've said that to people, people are like, you're a tool of the devil because you're trying to restrict it. No, I'm trying to be obedient. Right? So. Father, I've heard uh, the expression perfect possession. Yeah. Uh, can you comment on that? So perfect possession is normally, well, let's back up. So there's partial possession and full possession. Partial possession is where the demons possess a part of the body. I kind of mentioned that a little bit during the conference. So they possess a part of the body. Whereas full possession is they possess the person's entire body. And that possession of the entire body is sometimes called full possession or perfect possession. And the reason it's perfect possession is because over the course of time, the demons have led a person who's possessed to this point where the person will give consent. Usually the demon will offer something. It's basically a pact, but they offer something to the individual. And if the individual accepts it, then basically they become perfectly possessed, which means that the demon at that point, up until that point, the demon manifests sometimes, and sometimes he's not manifested. The person has periods of lucidity, and sometimes he doesn't have periods of lucidity. Once perfect possession happens, the person at that stage is never in control again. That the demons actually uh, have full, they manifest all the time. It's very subtle. Usually you can only tell it by what we call the secondary signs. The fact that the person lies all the time, they're... They're mendacious, they're duplicitous, etc. They cause damage everywhere they go, etc. So it's starting to sound like a politician. But anyway, <laughs> they, uh, so that perfect possession, once that happens, as exorcists, we never see them because people who are perfectly possessed, have they get perks from it. They like being possessed. And so there's, there's no reason to show up on our doorstep. We only know about it um, because once in a while, people have stumbled across it, etc., and so it's rare, it's extraordinarily rare, but it does exist. So F Father, we're gonna take uh, three more questions in honor of the Blessed Trinity. Okay. And so the crowd knows I know who those three people are, so I'm just letting you know. <laughs> Pretty soon I'm gonna lose half my garments like St. Paul, everyone keeps tugging at them. Hello, Father. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, so I'm from Canada. I have... I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll notice I'm here now. So. Um, so if it's possible, I have two questions for you. One, I have a friend who, well, most of my friends still live in Canada. One of them, the diocese he's living in is thinking about making it mandatory to be vaccinated in order to attend Mass. Mm -hmm. So... I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that uh, in terms of where does obedience lie right. and, you know. Um, the second question I had for you, I saw a video, um, and this is also pertinent to the vaccine thing, 
it was an Orthodox monk who was talking about his experience after receiving one of the Pfizer vaccines, right. and he said he experienced all this like acedia and spiritual deadness and things mm-hmm. like that. From my own personal experience, I have three of my friends who I know of who, whether coincidentally or not, got fully vaccinated. All of them are now struggling with their faith. But this, ec- this uh, Orthodox monk said that one of their exorcists, um, during a session, the demon said that they were able to enter in through the person, through the vaccine, because they were blessed in a Masonic lodge, blessed, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and they were able to enter through the blood of the unborn child used to create the vaccine. Right. So I wanted to know if you knew anything concretely about that, or if you could clear up some of the, yeah, just if you had any insight into that, those things. Um, to answer your first question, I'm not going to give you the long answer, which is the thorough answer, only because of the fact that we'd be here all night. Because it requires a number of discussions about, um, uh, about moral principles. <clears throat> but the, basically, the, the short answer is no. They, don't have, they, they cannot tell you to do that because there's, not a propor- there's two reasons. One, there's not a proportion between the murder of the child and creating the vaccine and the danger that it poses to society, the virus poses to society. And that's the real, that has been the argument from the beginning. This is one of the reasons why, you know, these people that are in charge of stuff are not stupid. This is one of the reasons why they spent two years haranguing us, trying to make us paranoid. And the reason they were trying to create all this fear is so that it would affect our judgment and we would think the situation was worse than it is. Well, I'm sorry, but a .0001 death rate doesn't constitute the gravity that is required in relationship to vaccines that have been developed from aborted fetal tissue. I'm sorry, it just doesn't reach that. Okay. So, so in that, in that the, bishops cannot, the bishops cannot require you to be vaccinated. It doesn't mean that they're not going to keep you out. I'm just saying morally they have no right to do that. Okay, that's the short answer for that. Um, as far as the second question is, you know, I've heard that, I've watched the video, I've listened to it. It's entirely possible that what has been recounted is actually true. Um, the question that I would have um, is this. First, let me, the, 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 let me just say this. People have asked me, we have not seen that particular side of the, or that problem on our, on, on our work. And I've talked to literally tens of exorcists. I've talked to pretty much all the top exorcists in the country, and none of us have seen that. Doesn't mean it's not authentic. So the real question for me is, was this blessing, which is just another name for a curse, was this cursing actually done over a specific set of lots or over the totality? So if it was done over the totality, then I think we would be seeing more of it Whereas I think it would be more reasonable to say that they probably did certain lots, and that's why we're seeing um, certain people that were getting the vaccinations from those particular lots of vaccination were the ones that were there could be experiencing that problem. Um, I've talked to other people that have had COVID. I had COVID, and there's a natural desolation from it. But I I did not see anything spiritual as such. I mean, I even did minor exorcisms. I had other priests do a minor exorcism. Nothing. It's just, a, it's a, you know, I think it was a kind of a natural problem. It doesn't mean that the demons aren't involved in the production of that thing and the, and the, you know, and the fact that it's just being crammed down our throat, which I think is diabolically inspired. But the fact is, is that we just haven't seen any of that. So 
Um, and I'm not trying to lessen it. I'm just saying we just haven't seen it. Hi, Father. Can you speak to circumstances where a, let's say, a bishop or somebody with legitimate authority over his subjects requires of his subjects to do something that is, let's just call it ambiguous in terms of its legitimacy? Where do the faithful have to obey? Where should they obey, even if they don't have to? And how does the devil get in the middle of all that? Uh, Even the Pope's authority, but the bishops too, but the Pope's authority and the bishops' authority is circumscribed by the divine positive law. So in other words, they don't have absolute authority. They can't tell you. And this is one of the real problems with the obedience that was proposed, that was propagated in the seminaries during the 40s and 50s, which was a Sulpician approach to obedience, where you just did what you, that you were told and that the virtue lies in just putting your brain on hold and you just do whatever you're told, right? St. Thomas says that that's actually vicious. It'll create vice. It's contrary to prudence. Because it's not that the, that the, uh, that the command of our superiors is subject to our judgment, it's that when a superior gives us something, we, it still has to be in congruity with supernatural prudence. And that basically supernatural prudence is determined by the divine positive law. What's the divine positive law? What we know in scripture. So they have a limited um, authority. So for example, the fact that the Holy Father has been making statements about, um, you know, that there's this environment and everybody has an obligation to do their thing for the environment. Well, I'm sorry, but that's outside the divine positive laws envisioning of things. It's true that we have an obligation to other human beings, so you don't go around polluting the environment unnecessarily because it has an impact on other human beings. But, you know, this idea of kind of signing off on global warming, I'm like, especially when you're here you know, in Michigan, I could use a little global warming, thank you. All right. Anyway, that being said, it's, it's, determined, it's determined by the divine positive law and the natural law as well. And so those, if you, once you know those well, then you, can, you know that the things that they may or may not be asking you fall within the scope of that. And so um, that's the sure reason. So you'd have, to, you'd have to study a little bit about the natural law and things of that side and the divine positive law to get a sense of it. But so, for example, they, they don't, let me just give you an example. They, do, they would not, they cannot tell you um, that you have an obligation to accept this new doctrine of faith that they're, trying to, that they're trying to propagate, right? That, for example, that everybody goes to heaven, right? They, they, they say, you have, you know, this is what we're teaching, and so you have to believe this. Or some of the more recent stuff that um, you'll hear is they'll say things like, you know, as a matter of charity, you should be getting the vaccination. Whoa, 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 whoa. So slow down here a minute. Okay. First of all, St. Thomas says that in order for an act to be in congruity with the charity, it cannot be against the natural law. Well, I'm sorry, but the vaccinations are against the natural law. So unless you have a proportion again, then you're not. So the point being is, is that they don't, that's outside the scope of their authority. And so... Um, that's just the short answer because if, if I was to give a, that's actually a lecture I would like to give at some point. I just, people keep hounding me, we got to hear something about obedience. And I'm like, I, I tell everybody, I'm the exact opposite of Carl Rahner. And I you know who called, Carl Rahner was this paratus during the Second Vatican Council. And literally, as the guy spoke, they were writing everything down, right? And he's, there's volumes and volumes and volumes of his work, which of course nobody's reading anymore. And uh, the, the phrase was, he never had a thought that wasn't published. 
My problem is I got all this stuff floating around in my head. I just don't have time to get it down. So there has to be a certain level of detachment, but that's one of them. I'm ho eventually, I'm hoping to do something, uh, something much more detailed on obedience, specifically in the context of some of the stuff that's been coming out in the last two years out of the Vatican. How, what of this stuff are we bound to and what aren't we? Okay. Got the last question sure. right here. Thank you, Father. Um, I have two questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, the first is reg regarding angelic hierarchy. I understand there's fairly extensive teaching um, as to different choirs right. and each having different roles they play. Right. I'm wondering if there is any kind of inverted order in terms of demons, like I understand you mentioned that there's a strong one or a, or a weak one, right? Right. Is there any established order? It's funny to say order because order is a you know a principle of God. But right, is yeah. there any such um, categorized understanding or teaching? Um, and then the second question is practical. I'm sure there's great books, uh, prayer books, or resources for us for learning um, binding prayers and mm. um, prayers to aid in this more. Uh, Making this kind of spiritual battle more explicit in our lives, what would you recommend as something um, for me and us to find and start praying? Um, well, there's the book that I put out, which is called Deliverance Prayers for the Lady. You can pick that up. There's also the one by Figpen just called Spiritual Warfare, which is a, it's a really good book. It's a, his is a little bit better in mine. In, mine has more prayers, so it's better in that respect. But his is better in the sense it kind of gives people more... Uh, the, the Practical advice on how to do stuff, which I think is, and how to understand it, which I think is really good. Um, so that, those would be the two recommendations I would have. That as far as the hierarchy goes in hell. So one angel, when it was created, was above another angel. So that based upon how intelligent they are. So the more intelligent the angel is, um, their 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 intellects were their wills, I should say, are proportionate to how intelligent they are. So the strength of the will is determined by uh, how intelligent they are. And so this hierarchy, this is the hierarchy that's based upon their natures. And St. Thomas says is that their nature doesn't change after the fall. So in hell, the, um, the hierarchy in hell is based upon the degree of intelligence there as well. But there it's practically, it practically plays itself out based upon the side of the will. So the reason a lower, uh, a, a demon who's not as intelligent will actually obey one of the upper demons is because through his will, he's stronger than the other one and he can force the other one to do certain things that he doesn't want to do or to think certain things. And so he'll just comply so he doesn't get beat up. But that, so it has to do with the strength of their will. And it's, um, it's based upon um, the original order that they had. So, okay. All right, I'll give you one more quick blessing. How's that sound? Benedicto de omnipotentis patris et fili et spiritus in superbos et one et semper. Amen.